Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Gav, welcome to the podcast. Uh, We did try and start this a little while ago and uh, we had some audio issues. So it's great to reconnect and... uh, and uh, talk about your very interesting business. Uh, how are you enjoying our latest round of COVID lockdowns? Hey Richard, thanks for having me back. Great to reconnect. Uh, yeah, I, I think definitely this round of lockdowns uh, seems to be having a way more significant business effect, ironically, than last time. And I think it's got to do with, you know, people are just over it. There's adrenal fatigue, there's decision fatigue, there's leadership fatigue. It's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, certainly uh, it seems that way. The initial lockdowns last year, we were largely unaffected. But uh, but gosh, how the world changes every day. I turn on the news and it's on, it's off, it's here, it's there. And uh, I don't think we'll be uh, escaping from this anytime soon. But uh, Gav, uh, really interested to learn a lot more about your business. So why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing professionally. Sure. Thanks. So what I've been spending, I guess, the last 10 years on building is Australia's leading integrated risk business that focuses in the non-financial risk area. So a lot of conventional consultants or training businesses focus specifically on one segment of risk. We've, we've decided, and we did decide a long time ago that, you know, financial risk is great, but there are experts who are really good at dealing with those sort of things. It's the non-financial risk, the things like safety, security, emergency, business continuity, risk culture, and, and that's the way we built our business. So we're a group of five companies, a uh, safety division, that's an RTO, a security consulting training business, a medical and health business, a risk consulting and culture change business, which I'm sure we'll spend most of our time talking about that aspect, and then a technology business. Okay. that integrates all of those pieces. And was the intention from the start to have this integrated solution or has it just kind of morphed into that over the years? Uh, no, it's, it's an interesting uh, observation, Richard. We, my, my background is in the security space. As you can hear from my accent, I'm originally South African. Uh, set up my first business there in 2001, which was a specialized security risk business. Yep. Um, was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to come and do my PhD here in Australia and realized that... You know, the risks facing Australian businesses are quite different to the ones we were solving for clients in other parts of the world. Okay. So that started the journey of going, how do we actually get better decision-making? And it really started quite simply that when I looked at the world of specialized security here in Australia, particularly going back, I migrated here 13, 14 years ago, 2008. Um, it, was, it was comparatively very immature compared to the rest of the world, but domestically, the risks are so much lower from a security risk perspective that it, it made sense that security wasn't such a big deal here. Right. So we bought the, we bought the safety business you know, after looking and going, well, safety is legislated. It's a mandatory requirement. It's ever expanding. And we thought it would be a really simple thing to be able to approach, particularly clients working offshore okay. with an integrated safety security offering, and then found that the risk piece was the piece that was misunderstood. And I'll give you a quick example of that. Uh, at one point, we partnered with an insurer and we did a roadshow, particularly focusing on non-exec directors. 
And, you know, we would find the, 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 the most terrible business practices kind of rolling up where people would go, my risk is all good because my internal people tell me it is. Right. Or another example of I actually had, I was giving a session and I had a very nice guy come up to me midway, shake my hand and go, yeah, this is great. It's really good, but I'm going to leave because if I stay here and keep listening, then I can't, you know, have plausible deniability. <laughs> your, your laughter says it all. And I kind, of, I kind of just looked at the guy and went, you don't have that anyway. You're, you're an non-exec director. You can't say that it's not your responsibility to be making the best calls for the business and its people. Um, so we, that's where our risk business started. And really, it was interesting. It was, our first client there was Anglo-American in the mining space, where we were looking at this idea of integrated risk, or how do you stop separating the way we tackle opportunity from the way we stop bad things happening? Right. And then how do we silo bust? Because if it doesn't really help that we're so good at risk in one part of our business, but terrible in another. Uh, and the more we kind of looked down this risk lens, it really did more for us. In 2015, we won a contract with ACU Executive Education to redevelop and then deliver their postgraduate program in the psychology of risk. Um, we're in our sixth year of doing that now. And you know, it's led to a constant shift in our business because people often look at me and they go, Gav, you know, you, you started your career as a professional bodyguard and, you know, you do all this stuff. Why are you in the business of people and culture change? And realistically, you can build the best policies, train your people, have the best technology. But if your people aren't connected or don't understand things like why we take a chance here, but don't take a chance there, performance is always bad. Yep. So, you know, the other stuff just, either it doesn't work at all or it doesn't work well if you don't get the people alignment part right. Well, I, you've uh, touched on your background, which is certainly very interesting, as I recall from when we started our conversation last time. So why don't we just briefly step back there uh, before we get into, um, you know, uh, what you're doing here in Australia. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, where you were born and, you know, your early life. Sure. Uh, so born in Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I guess I was, I was quite a sickly child and my parents started me training martial arts at the age of five, which I still train and teach. And I know that's something we had in common when you shared with me some of your experiences last chat. Um, and uh, I guess when I finished high school, I'd, I'd really changed the, I guess, physical limitations I previously had. I had two second degree black belts. I was on the South African Taekwondo team and wasn't really sure what to do with my life, as you know, many youngsters who leave school land up in that position. Uh, my year was the year in South Africa that conscription ended, and it was quite confusing because I actually thought that would be a good pathway for me, you know, going into the military or something like that. Uh, but I spent a, a year training and teaching in Israel and the US after high school and became a living student of a guy by the name of Dennis Hanover, who's considered the uh, grandfather of Israeli martial arts. Uh -huh. And which which taught me a lot. Ironically, it's the skills I think I learned during that tenure, you know, the perseverance, the mental toughness, uh, the ability to challenge self-doubt that, that really helped. Uh, came back to South Africa, started studying. I did a marketing and management degree first. Then and I, and I, my original my very first business contract was a contract with a bodyguard company. And it was a, a, a contra deal where I would train their people in self-defense and defensive tactics in exchange for doing all the close protection training. So after about a year of doing that, I started working. So I was studying part-time, 
sorry, sorry, starting full-time working part-time as a close protection specialist or self-defense trainer. Finished my first set of qualifications and swapped that over. Uh, upgraded that into a, a BBA and uh, started working full-time starting part-time. And by the time I'd done that, I kind of had a, gra- a graduate diploma in marketing management, a BBA, about four or five years of operational experience. And I just thought it's time to do my own thing. So we set up our own business uh, and it was you know, very, very uh, interesting back that time. We just picked it right. It, there was a large exodus of expertise out of uh, government departments in South Africa. So our first few contracts were all you know, really top tier military special forces, the police special task force there. Uh, we then got into the corporate world and uh, this was my first real taste of cultural change. So what were you, sorry, before you go on, what sort of contracts were you being engaged to deliver at that time? So so the initial ones, when we set up the business in the first place, we were going to focus on training primarily. Uh, And we focused on training initially. And and as we started finding, uh, you know, opportunities presented. So because we started with a specialist training, we got contacted by corporates to come and do training for them. And, And that was really the big opportunity we had with Standard Bank, who were the world's largest global emerging market bank. We trained a, an executive protection team for them, which, you know, it was kind of interesting. Australia and South Africa are very different uh, markets and different offerings. And what triggered that was uh, a, a South African government ruling that all senior executives of listed companies need to have their salaries published. So right. instantly that created huge risk for somebody at the top of the food chain because people knew how much they were worth Therefore, you know, kidnappings, home invasions, et cetera, picked up. Yep. So the, the risk treatment there was close protection for the execs. What started happening in Standard Bank was uh, a level of dissatisfaction of the average staff member who was going, well, if you're not on the board, nobody cares about you. If you're not an exec, nobody cares about you. So interestingly enough, this was probably our big shift into corporate training. We we launched a program and there's a case study if any of your listeners are interested in it with Standard Bank called the You Matter program or the You Matter campaign, which was all about trying to give staff the skills they needed to keep themselves safe and make better decisions. And we landed up training 23,000 people for the bank over three years and really taking their culture from switched off to switched on. Sorry, Gav. So mm. initially the training was very much around, you know, self-defense and obviously with the, uh, you know, the high-risk nature of South Africa and, and so on. But it, it's now moved into uh, a much broader context. Is that right? Absolutely. So even back then, just organically, and it's kind of interesting, I'm sure many of your entrepreneurial listeners will will uh, resonate with this comment. About three years after me and my partner started the first business, we woke up and went, holy crap, we've got a business. Right. You know, like we didn't even have a website. We had bought a house and converted it into an office. But we turned around, I think back then we had about 12 staff or 14 staff working for us. And we actually had to grow up. You know, we actually had to go, well, it's not, it's not about doing the fun stuff anymore. It's about growing our business. And it was around then that we got quite serious with what we were doing. Uh, and it was an interesting journey. If I look at, you know, I'm, I'm only 44 now. We started that first business. I was 23. Uh, so we were, we were always looking, I guess, for the older, more established uh, I guess, air of authority to assist us in the business. Yep. Which in the end, we actually just found that that really wasn't necessary. And uh, we, we, we tried that a few times. It didn't work. 
but we, we morphed and changed that business to, to have three key divisions. Um, training, which we've already discussed, which we divided into corporate or specialist. And, you know, that business, we picked up really nice contracts. Like we trained the Prime Minister of Kenya's protection team, the president of Equatorial Guinea. Um, we had incumbent ongoing contracts with a lot of the mayoral protection teams or special units around Africa and into Southeast Asia too. Uh, we then looked, we, we just started, because we had trained so many people, we started getting requests to provide support from a manpower perspective. So we set up our manpower division, which was loosely divided into permanent deployments, which was a deployment of you know, a month or longer, or ad hoc deployments, which was anything less. And you're talking about deployment of actual security people who would be part of the security details. So it, it was quite interesting. We, we made the call back then to be so-called uh, snobs and decided that we weren't going to participate by providing low-level manpower. In fact, the internal discussion back then was, you know, if, if, if you just need anybody, don't come to us. But if you need somebody, we're the people to come to. And uh, we landed up providing close protection specialists and security managers. That, those, that was our deployment strategy. So we never got into, uh, you know, lower level frontline staff. We would always subcontract that uh, if those opportunities presented. And then, you know, so we had training and we had uh, what we refer to then as operations or manpower. And we set up a risk management division then, which was everything that wasn't those two. So we would get requests, for example, for a fraud investigation or an electronic countermeasure sweep or a security risk assessment, or even just a generic fraud assessment or a risk assessment. So anything that wasn't those two pure things landed up in risk. And it's, it's been interesting. That was probably what, 2003 or four. And uh, we became fascinated with this idea of risk and decision-making. In fact, that's been my ongoing academic focus is, you know, why, if, if we know how to make good decisions and in hindsight, we usually know what a good decision looks like, why are we so bad at making them? Right. And we only have to look at what's happening in COVID now to highlight all those examples. And uh, that's sort of how the business changed. Uh, I came out to Australia in 2008 um, having never formally served in the police or military, I focused on the academics. Mm -hmm. um, so I was the first in Africa to get a master's in security risk and then later the first to get a PhD specializing in security risk. And, you know, al along the journey, I think it's the intent of how do we enable consistently good decision making that leads people to achieve their objectives? Whether that's on a personal or professional level, that's become one of those ethos pieces for us. And the way the business is evolved and morphed, you know, Australia is a different operating environment to many of the other third world places we worked in. But interestingly enough, if we look around now, and this is kind of that evolution we've got to now with this idea of pre-resilience instead of resilience or compliance, which we can explore shortly, that, you know, while we're so blessed and lucky to be in Australia, I th I th you know, I'm grateful every day, uh, particularly when you look at what's happening in other parts of the world, but for Australia to stay competitive in this fast-changing, complex global environment, we have to do things differently. And, you know, the things that Australia has done to get us to where we are now are not the things that will enable us to stay competitive moving forward. So that's where our business sits now. Uh, we offer a broad range of assurance, audit, and assessment services. Then we offer a lot of training or governance support. 
And then we potentially plug that together with manpower technology if clients require that across our divisions. Okay, so why don't you give us a, a couple of examples of the type of engagement you might have then? Sure. So just as a few examples, and I'll quickly talk across the businesses, like we do medical support of the Snowy Hydro Project. We run the clinic on Hayman Island. Uh, on the security side, we provide ongoing security solutions. At the moment, actually, interestingly enough, for a lot of not-for-profits, so uh, Salvos, Venies, Mission Australia, are all clients of ours. On the consulting side, it's a broad church. So we do, for example, we've just finished a big project with Sydney Trains. We did a project not too long ago with Defence on a lot of this intelligent risk intelligence and enhanced decision making. And we've got a full-blown cultural change project at the moment with Teachers Health Fund, where every staff member there is getting trained in personal risk decision-making, organisational risk decision-making, and how those integrate to create high performance. So you're talking about Teachers Union Health, T-U-H? Uh, teachers Health Fund, yeah, Teachers Health Union. Yep. Oh, I think it's the same thing. Anyway, um, Could, yeah. okay, right. So, all right, so let me yeah. just, um, okay, so going back to, say, for example, the, uh, the not-for-profit work that you've mm. been doing, talk, talk us through, you know, what, what you've been delivering there. Awesome. So excellent example. So when those, those of you who are Brisbane based, uh, when COVID kicked in last year and everybody went into lockdown, the only people left on the street were the homeless. And uh, the state government then decided to solve that problem by housing them collectively in student accommodation. Okay. And we became engaged with the risk management, the risk assessments, and providing the physical security and manpower plus training of staff for those projects. Uh, and interestingly enough, what often happens with us is we get engaged for one part and then clients realize, hey, you can do cybersecurity and you can do this and you can do that. And our offering often creeps. What we have found in, in an ideal world and the best engagements are the engagements where we're actually able to start at the top of the organization, understand its objectives and its risks associated with that, and then really look at anything that would help them speed up achieving their objectives or stop them from achieving their objectives? And then how do we help them magnify the ability to achieve the objective while managing the downside risk? So that's the methodology we've built. And it's probably a good segue to talk about how we do it, if that's of interest. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, uh, but just prior to getting to this, you mentioned earlier, uh, you did this roadshow and you were talking to not executive directors. So essentially, when you're talking about you know, your best entree is from top down. So you would potentially meet with a board to understand their level of self-awareness of the risk uh, factors within the organisation and then use that to broaden out a suite of offerings to solve those uh, inherent risk issues, but also look at ways to uh, improve the way that the business is dealing with risk overall. Good summary. And I think it often works in two or three ways. Sometimes it's a bit of education. So we do quite a few board briefs, just talking about what is actually happening, what's likely to be happening. And from a, I also am the chair of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management for Australia and New Zealand. And where we find organisations get confused is that uh, operational risk is quite well evolved within the Australian operating environment. You know, almost the smallest player who even, you know, one man show that just starts up knows they need to get insurance and they need to do a few things that cover off that operational level risk. Yep. 
the the gap we find is when it when you when you have to transition from hold on how do I make sure my service delivery is consistent which is operational risk to hold on what is it I want to achieve and what might help me or hurt me from achieving that that's the strategic part so what we found and I think your uh, and I so you and I started this conversation with the idea of what the, I don't know if you've heard the term VUCA volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous no I haven't so it's, it's, it's a pretty cool term. I wish I had invented it, but I didn't. <laughs> um, it, it was originally coined by the U.S. Department of Defense, actually in the late 1980s at the end of the Cold War. And it kept evolving. And in the early 2000s, when the Internet and uh, tech boom happened, it, it started getting used in U.S. business schools a little. And we, I'm happy to say in 2015, we were the first business school with the partnership at with the executive at ACU to start teaching VUCA readiness through our cyclist program. Right. Most, most MBA programs or executive development programs will talk about that now. What we found interesting is if we accept that the default position of our operating environment is now, and it's worth talking about it because I, I know you're interested in this stuff too, is now complex by, by default. We've actually, and there's a whole technical set of definitions behind this, but realistically, the, the difference between a, a simple or complicated operating environment and a complex or chaotic environment is the ability to forecast what could go wrong and control it. Uh -huh. so I'll give you an example, and I use this with my clients all the time around complexity, because a lot of times uh, people who've been in the, the business world for at least two or three decades have been trained that they want to be in control of everything and the things that they aren't in control of, they should pretend they're in control of. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you look at this idea, which is you know, cognitive bias first coined by, I can't remember her name now, but she was a US researcher who spoke about the illusion of control and how vulnerable we become because of the illusion of control. And COVID is another good example of that one. But what we found was that when we start looking at this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous operating environment, step one is for boards, leaders, and executives to realize that there are many parts of their business they won't be able to control. And it's their ability to set themselves up for uh, disruption often has a negative connotation, but it's for, and the way I like to describe it is we've got business as usual. And in the modern world, there's pretty much no excuse for not having a decent risk management approach to business as usual. Yep. Uh, you know, if you know what you have to do and you know how you have to do it, managing the risks to a reasonably practicable level as the legislation refers to it is not a difficult thing to do. It just takes a bit of commitment. Uh, the next step though around managing disruption as COVID has shown us is a totally different kettle of fish. So what we've built over time now is a formula for organizations to not just survive these disruptive pieces that come with VUCA, but to learn to thrive and to actually repivot and position the way they operate to capitalize on opportunity, not just manage downside risk and not just fixate on this perceived idea of control. Mm -hmm. And probably just to close off on that, the, the fundamental change has been three things. One, it's been the internet. So never before in human history have we had you know, the ability to access information anytime. So it's harder to control your people when they can, you know, source their own truth. The next challenge we've had is social media. You know, everybody has got the ability to communicate a message. 
And I often laugh at organizations who, who go, yeah, Gav, that's fine, but we've managed that risk. We have a social media policy and our people know they can't post. And I sort of say to them, guys, let's just understand, you know, millennials and Gen Z entering the workplace. These are our entire demographics of people who've grown up posting habitually. You know, they're going to do it without thinking. So if, if you think that your policy is going to be strong enough to break habit without incentive, you're probably kidding yourself. And then the third variable is our, inter, our highly interconnected supply chains and globalization of business. So when we look at those three things, it's almost impossible for anybody to go, I have total control of every aspect of my business. I, it's interesting as you're talking because I've been listening to a number of podcasts recently uh, and one of the issues that seems to be happening in the US a lot is where, uh, you know, this highly sort of woke, you know, left culture of um, uh, shaming people and calling for people's resignations in a very public way and the, uh, the impact that it's having on some of these companies uh, and their inability to essentially control this environment. And it seems that a lot of the CEOs have basically thrown up their hands up in the air and said, look, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, that kind of feeds in a little bit to what you're talking about, but obviously it's got much broader implications. So just describe perhaps a, a real scenario. Uh, you Obviously, you don't need to name the client, but uh, uh, to give us a sense of, you know, what this risk can transpire into. Well, I'll talk about my business as an example, because I can, you know, I don't need permission to do that one. Sure. And, and so everything we do from a consulting or high performance perspective, we, we do internally as well. And this is the interesting piece that we found evolving different businesses in different places. So from a first world empowered culture perspective, and when I say empowered culture, people have lots and lots of rights in first world countries. Yep. You know, so we, we, we need a different type of leadership to create high performance in an Australia versus a third world environment where people are just happy to have a job, for example, and the leverage of job security is strong enough to make them do whatever you want them to do. So what we found is there's actually three things that link together to get outcomes effectively in VUCA. The first one is this risk and enhanced decision-making. If we can't manage our own biases, we can't realize the fatal flaws of the biases of the people around us, including our advisors, then often we're making you know, poor decisions. So I, I like to define that piece as pretty simple. Our goal is, can you make the best possible decision in the most appropriate time frame, based on the best available intelligence? And you know, I, I specifically talk about intelligence, not information, because information could be right or wrong. Intelligence is vetted and fit for purpose. And so often teaching decision-making for the last three years now, sorry, five years, one of the things that constantly blows my mind is how people you know, are still so stuck in this idea of, hey, I'm not biased, everyone else is, but I'm good. And uh, you know, there, there's so many examples of that, particularly when we go consulting, where you'll see, for example, and I'll give you board examples because I know that's something of interest for you, but you know, where you talk about diversity on boards, and, you know, people have gone, oh, we have to have females. You kind of go, hold on a second, why? Let's go back to the purpose. What is the purpose of diversity? The purpose of diversity is so that people look at the world differently and look at challenges differently, and that we can have oppositional, even contradictory views, 
to things so we get a better outcome. And it's interesting, the competitive tension that evolves between having diversity of opinion, but still being aligned compared to going, well, we just disagree because we don't like each other. And, you know, that decision-making piece is really important because if we don't get that right, then you shift to the next key piece, which is what I like to refer to as situational leadership. In a VUCA world, it's not necessarily the people at the top of the food chain that are always best placed to make the best decision, the quickest decision, or be the exemplars. In fact, very often it's deference to expertise or it's about the person on the site at the time that needs to make the right call. It's quite a different model to the historical hierarchy chain of command. And, you know, as is often described, these ivory towers of decision-making that evolve within businesses, which often lead to poorer decisions. So in my view with this stuff is we actually need to teach everybody to lead and everybody to follow, not one or the other. Some people will have a natural flair and will naturally want to lead or have built the skill set to lead. Others won't. But to thrive in VUCA, we need to balance those skill sets. And then the last piece is around high performance. You know, what's the point of having great decision-making capability, great leaders, but we don't know where we're going. We don't know how to measure where we're going. And we don't know what good looks like which is where culture objective strategy comes into peace. So from my perspective, it's fascinating to look at how the world has evolved when we look at risk particularly. It's either viewed primarily as compliance, you know, the stuff we have to do or we get in trouble, or it's viewed as something negative that these are the things that could go wrong. How do we minimize the likelihood of those going wrong? And you know, Australia is incredible. We've got so much going for us, but we are so risk averse in our decision-making defaults that we often miss the upside opportunities because we're so worried about managing the downside risk. Okay, so um, what I'm hope, what I'd really like you to do is to sure. talk about it in terms of a practical, you know, an example. I, I understand what you're saying, and, and you started to lead into this millennials and social media, and you know the the uh, social media. Uh, uh, policies and so on, um, and then you know this idea of diversity on boards to remove groupthink. Uh, uh, in terms of where you're actually practically, you know, here's a situation: we have a client. This is what it looked like. This is what we did. As a result, this is what happened. Talk us through because uh, it, it sounds fascinating. Sure. So I'm, I'm going I'm to use client examples and corp and my own business at the same time. So, you know, a good example is how we function through COVID, you know, and I think this is interesting where we have always, ever since I had I sold out of my first business in South Africa in 2014, I wanted to build a different business and wanted to ensure that we weren't too caught up with, uh, you have to be in the office, you have to be in the office, this amount of time and the more outdated, let's say, uh, limited lineal thinking that often comes around hiring staff and what we do with them, we had started changing that in 2015 already. So when COVID came in, it wasn't really, how does my team work remotely? How do we keep everybody pulling together? It was an aligned thinking because we put so much work into building this idea of resilience into our team and aligning common purpose. It was, how is the market dealing with it? What do we have to do to support our clients? And how do we reposition ourselves to be able to give the market what it needs at a given time. And some of these things, for example, uh, 
have ranged from what lots of people have had to do, which is pivot to online deliveries or online consulting models. But a few times, and I think you, you asked about what we do differently with clients. I think realistically, my approach has always been a partner approach. And I'll give you two examples of this as we go. The first, the first one, and sorry, this is underpinned by the idea that to get robust, sticky performance via change, you need to have incentive, right? There's got to be something in it for all parties. So an external party will come into a business with fresh eyes and not necessarily be, uh, how do we say, uh, indoctrinated into the culture or the, this is how we do it. The challenge, though, that a fresh party coming in is, has is they don't know the people, they don't know the business, they don't know some of the intricacies as well as people who work there all the time. So by integrating the best of us and the best of our clients, we find we get a better result. So with the project, for example, we ran with Sydney Trains, which was they were changing the way they do incident emergency management. And it was brought to their attention that they hadn't trained a set of skills, which we specialize in, which is critical thinking, decision-making, effective and directive comms, and putting those together with dealing with disruption. So we built a, a, a program for them. But we found halfway through the program, culture, cultural change was probably more important than education. And we actually found ourselves rebadging, repositioning together with a client to actually include aspects of cultural change so we could get positive attitudinal outcomes for them. We could have very easily just gone in and went, well, you hired us to do one, two, three, and four. We're just going to keep doing one, two, three, and four and met all the outcomes of the contract. But that pivot to be able to go, this is actually what you need now. And we didn't know it to start. Um, and another good example was a project we actually did with Queensland Police. And uh, one of the interesting pieces there was a when they merged state government security into Queensland Police, uh, when you look at paramilitary organizations, you know, chain of command, um, you know, the ability to influence via hierarchical command, is really built into these organizations very strongly. In fact, it's what enables, enables them to thrive during disruption. Then you've got, you know, uh, for example, a more corporate, a corporate component coming in and you had this massive cultural intersection of frustration both ways. And the, the good old uh, she'll be a right approach, you know, it, it works over time and you can wear people out over time. But what we actually did with them was in collaboration with them, we came up with an integrated model, which created some sort of hierarchical repositioning of the commander and the, the QPS drive. But we also then looked at what we were doing for the people. And we gathered that information, worked with um, a sampled group of their people to build them a roadmap to implement. And you know what we found with these sort of things, particularly with VUCA, you know, a, a roadmap, I believe, is a really good suggestion because sometimes you'll hit a roadblock and you might have to find another way around something. If we are too structured in going, let's do steps one to 10 and you'll be fine, it tends not to work that well. And this goes back to change. You know, I think it's interesting. The world is changing around us at a pace that, you know, humans are not actually built to cope with. And this has been going on for the last few decades. Uh, people smarter than me reckoned actually in 2019, we went from the fourth industrial rev revolution into the fifth. And, you know, the fourth was all about automation, robotics, and AI plugging into everyday life and business. The fifth is 
and it's almost being referred to as how do we get the dance between man and machine right? And what's fascinating now is most technology platforms have already overtaken human capability. You know, you buy a brand new software system, it can probably do more than your people use it for. But why do we need these things and how do we enable great performance and decision making that's not totally reliant on technology, but Im improved, supported, and outcomes enhanced. So I kind of look at three things when we do our consulting processes. Realistically, it's, yes, can you use tech? That's great if you can. Is it scalable? Will it be accepted? Two, what is your processes? And three, your people. And if you only get one of those right, inevitably you could have you know, the best technology, you could have the best governance procedure policy system that your people never use and hate. Or you could have the most motivated people in the world who love working for you, but can't do their jobs because their technology is holding them back or their process is so bureaucratic that they can't actually do anything quickly. So it's, it's a little bit of, this is where risk, for me, risk is the integrator of all of this stuff. For so long, we've tried to go, hold on, risk is a separate department or it's a separate job. But as mentioned, we, we, we started looking at integrated risk in 2014. In 2019, Gartner published that they think enterprise risk management is out of date now and integrated risk is where it's at. So, you know, from a, from a, even from a training perspective, uh, one of the things we try and drive is something I call the whole of person model. And if you think about you and I, you know, right now we're both at work. Uh, we're having a conversation that you might deem to be more collegiate than business and we're doing it virtually. So these three domains, work life, personal life and virtual life have all intersected. The old model was, you know, work-life balance, separate your work and your, your, your personal life. But the, the new modern operating context has thrown those three things together. And we need to think differently about the way we train and prepare our people and the way we measure performance to get outcomes. And I'll, I'll give you a simple example. What's the point of having somebody on your executive team who makes incredible decisions for your business every day but makes terrible decisions for themselves in their personal life. <laughs> I know quite a few of those people, <laughs> probably including myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but here's the trick, right? And, and this is the interesting piece. It's the, the mantra of the world we live in today is probably do more with less quicker. You know, everybody's feeling that pressure. And it's why, for example, as we keep going through these lockdowns, more and more people are freezing and panicking. They're kind of going, I can't do more with less quicker. I can barely do what I had to do before. And I think we're starting to get to this crux point now where if we don't switch on the human enablement component, which has become re re relatively switched off in the last while. When I say that over the last while, as we become more industrialized, the perception of, you know, how do I motivate staff? How do I get staff to want to perform for me and for them? You know, how do we align everybody to move to common objectives. None of that is new. It just used to be able to be implemented by somebody at the top of the food chain giving an order. Now that sort of structure doesn't work anymore. We need people to buy into what we do. We need people to believe in what we do. We need to provide them with a work environment that enables them to feel engaged. And while again, that, these sort of things have been spoken about for two or three decades now, when we look at the way most of our organizations run, they're not really risk-empowered and situationally leadership-centric. 
they're more built on the idea of, hey, where are my KPIs? And you better do what I tell you to do. And if you don't, you're in trouble. And then we go, hey, why aren't people performing well or why aren't they motivated? So it's kind of interesting. I think if we can build good skill sets generically, and we've built a set of them that we build into this idea of resilience, then people should be able to you know, apply good decision-making in all three domains, you know, at home, online, or at work. They should be able to plan ahead in all three domains. And we've become so hyper-focused on, I'm only going to teach you the skills you need to do the job that I need you to do, instead of actually looking at people as a whole being. And I know with some of your, your background that, that you uh, get that concept intrinsically. But one of the things I find fascinating, and we're seeing little shifts, but our partner approach, uh, we, we've done a couple of uh, COVID incident reviews for clients, particularly bigger ones, looking at the way they responded and the way they performed. And it's been fascinating just to see the narrative that organizations or people tell themselves versus what a fresh look actually shows. And so I'm not going to say... What's which, an example of that? So I'm not going to say which client this one was, but a, a very large client, uh, a local government client, who, when we did their review, we found that actually all their preparations and all their business continuity plans and all their other stuff, they had all of it so they could tick a compliance box. The problem was it wasn't fit for purpose. It wasn't communicated ahead of time. People didn't understand how this stuff worked. So that stuff really didn't work very well for them. And what they landed up doing was building the situational leadership capability. And along the way, they learned a lot. So where they started was quite a poor position. Where they ended up was quite a great position. You know, people had learned so many skills and learned how to pivot and collegiate problem solving became the norm. In fact, ironically for them, we said the biggest risk they faced was key man risk now. Right. Because there were two particular people in the organization of about 5,000 that stood up and owned those processes. And one's already left the organization. Right. So it's interesting to see how the risk landscape changes as things change. And sometimes doing really well at something actually brings different risk. It's not good or bad. It's just different. So what we found is that there's really three stages to look at. The compliance mindset is really good to start. If I can't even do the stuff I have to do to keep me out of jail, I'm probably not going to have a good business. The problem is people get stuck on compliance and they think it will solve every problem. So the challenge we've got with compliance, and it's interesting, I was interviewed on a podcast not too long ago, and we were talking about this compliance-driven approach. And somebody on the, on the podcast mentioned that, you know, the average Australian financial institution has about 7,000 plus compliance requirements they have to meet just to be in business. So, you know, we've become fixated with this idea of regulation and compliance as a solution for everything. It's not a solution for everything. It's a good starting point to address the clearly observable repetitive risk that manifests. The next piece when organizations mature is they often find that compliance is not enough, so they move to what we refer to as a state of resilience. They accept that things will go wrong, and even with the best you know, anti-laundering, uh, anti-fraud approaches, people may still steal with them or make a mistake. So resilience is very useful in that it stops this illusion of control idea and we start realizing, hey, things could go wrong. And we start building things like business continuity plans. We start building things like crisis management teams. We start making sure we have a, an emergency fund somewhere in the business. 
And those sort of things improve the likelihood of the business weathering disruption effectively. We found two problems with resilience because initially we thought that was where it was at. You know, you just shift from compliance to resilience and you get this mythical organizational resilience outcome and, you know, you're a unicorn now. It's great. But what we found was two things. One, the challenge with resilience, very often people think it's inevitable. So it's inevitable somebody will steal from us. It's inevitable a competitor will disrupt us, et cetera, et cetera. So we often lose the preventative capability. And lots of, lots of good and bad things can be achieved by grabbing opportunity or preventing the negative side of it. We want people to be empowered. And this goes right from the top to the bottom, obviously within appetites and tolerance levels. The other problem we found with resilience, and I know your listeners can't see me, but I'm still going to do it anyway because you can, Richard. Yeah. Um, if you imagine that where my hand is, is a point of disruption. So business is cruising along, having a good time, making profits, get to the point of disruption, shakes the whole business up. The job then of a resilient business is how quickly can they overcome this disruption and get back to where they were. The question that, you know, and COVID has shown us this in many ways that organizations have to be asking themselves is were they actually in a good place pre-disruption? Is this actually the place they want to be returning to? Because we might have learned so much through disruption or opportunities might have presented through disruption that the whole goal of getting back to where we were might actually be a wasted goal. So what we found with this idea of pre-resilience is really those two things. To get to this idea of pre-resilience, first you need compliance, then you need resilience. So it's more of a journey than it is, you know, I magically click my fingers and I'm in the high performance state. But when we get to this idea of pre-resilience, we're going, we've taken the best of compliance, we've taken the best of resilience, and now what we want is a bounce forward mentality, not a bounce back mentality. We want to go every time we get disrupted or a problem presents, where's the opportunity in it? So it's opportunity centrism. The other thing we want is we want our people to proactively own the ability to stop bad stuff happening in the first place, not just go, it's inevitable or the normal one. It's not my department. It's not my problem. Uh, it's not my, you know, it's not my job description. All of those things, which are so common, uh, just, just create more vulnerability. So what we found, and this really started with the psychology of risk stuff, what we found is people and teams and then organizations who get this stuff will dramatically improve their ability to cope in the world we live in now. And if they can cope in the world we live in, it then positions them to the next leap, which is how do we thrive? How do we start to take advantage of even the worst disruption? So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And okay. what, we've been, what we've been finding now with this resilience approach um, it's really evolved and innovated a lot. Even since we started chatting a few months ago, we've now got a UK level five qualification in it. We've got executive masterclasses in it. We've got a grad certain grad dip in development, and it's becoming quite a well-established consulting methodology. So let's, uh, let's, you know, leave some people listening to this podcast with some things that they can think about practically for their business. Uh, to go back to something you said earlier, and uh, certainly, as you know, I run uh, groups for CEOs and managing directors, and, uh, and this is a frequently raised topic. So uh, we are now in a, uh, an environment where people are often spending more of their time working from home than in the office. Productivity seems to be pretty good, uh, but culturally, we've got some real concerns about 
maintaining culture. And then you add into it the, uh, the added uh, comment that you made earlier, you know, a lot of young people uh, in particular, uh, you know, are potentially doing reputational damage to their employer and creating dysfunction within the business because of, uh, you know, their, uh, their happiness to get on social media and, uh, you know, uh, talk about things which in a pre-COVID environment, you know, would have been talked about perhaps in the workplace and dealt with in the workplace. Now in this uh, uh, fragmented environment, um, it's creating, creating some real issues. And I mean, we're, we're talking about real issues for some of the largest companies in the world, like Apple and Google, and, and no doubt for small business owners like me, uh, we look to that and think far out, how do I actually protect uh, the culture of my business and minimise those kind of risks. So what, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, CEOs and business owners could be thinking about in relation to that? Awesome question. And I'm very glad we've gone this way. So I think the, f the first point to raise is something called the hero myth. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the hero myth, but uh, it's based on this idea that, you know, when we grow up, we have this, uh, we have this almost fairy tale expectation that our leaders or a hero will come and help us through any, any sort of difficulty or challenge we're going to face. We tend to have this perception that heroes are perfect and therefore leaders must be perfect too. And it's just not a real picture of the world we live in. Particularly in Australia, you know, we, only have, we don't have to look back too far, sort of look at how quickly we juggle prime ministers and how quickly we change leaders as soon as we see something that's unpalatable. Instead of, there's two things that I think we need to start with. The first one is accepting the fact that we are all actually flawed as leaders. There's no such thing as the perfect leader. But having said that, we live in a very weird time where we've got this intersection of old school hierarchical chain of command business approaches with modern, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, empowered, agile and integrated workforces that have a common purpose and vision. And it's not to say one is better than the other. One is managerialism centric, the other is leadership centric. So what I urge people to do is first and foremost, we need to start changing the way people think about hierarchy and leadership. And we need to start shifting the ability for us to be able to integrate our staff collectively for our objectives or purposes. And you know, when people hear me say that, they go, yeah, Gav, we know that. Like that's, that's old. You know, we, we always know we set a purpose, a mission, a vision. We get our team to buy into it and we move forward. In a remote, complex workforce like we have now, the need for people to be self-motivated, self-engaged, and connect with what their organization does has never been more important. So the leadership role is absolutely critical now. The challenge we've got is the hero myth and leadership fatigue. You know, think of, think of yourself, Richard, uh, you know, running a, a small business, you're everything, right? Every big decision comes to you. You know, all the other pieces around scale, expansion, new hires, they all sit with you. And it's a pretty thankless job. So part of the challenge we've kind of got with this stuff is first and foremost, we have to actually look at what are the skills our people need to thrive. And they're not just the technical skills. The technical stuff is easy. You know, teaching people to, you know, use Microsoft Office or, you know, be able to engage in a virtual meeting. Those are all teachable skills. It's teaching people to be able to become self-motivated, 
understand what the organization needs from them and then figure out the best way they can give the organization what they need, what the organization needs aligned to what they need. Because we no longer can force outputs. You know, if, if you were in the office and I could watch you, I could make sure you do this and this and this and this and this time. If we fall back, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening with this, if we fall back to, hey, I want to have productivity monitoring. So I want to see we're all remote. I want to see, you know, what, what websites are you on? How often are you clicking, et cetera? We've now moved to a model of compliance-based control, which inevitably people just won't deliver on unless you can absolutely penalize them when they don't. So the question I'd be asking is, if I want to make sure you've sent five emails in an hour, and that's the metric, and you're working from home, who says those emails had anything of value? Who says they solved the problem? And if those five emails could have been solved in one phone call, my entire metric system is messing up performance. So we've spent a long time building what I believe is the link to individual resilience and organizational resilience. It's about great decision-making at an individual team and organizational level, which is a constant work in practice. So little things that your listeners can take straight away. Um, we've got a ton of this stuff available uh, on some of our websites and there's a lot of articles on this if people are interested. But right now, First and foremost, take what I refer to as a, a tactical pause. Okay. Um, you spoke about mindfulness earlier. I wanted to give you a half hour through the screen and go, you <laughs> rock. But one of the things we found is there's sort of a, a process to this. And it starts with the idea of situational awareness, vigilance, and mindfulness. If I can't understand what's happening around me, put my limited energy into the key things that are important, but also understand what could help me or hurt me, inevitably my decisions will be flawed. So the next stage after situational awareness is critical thinking, then decision-making, then action or inaction, because sometimes it's wiser to not do something than do something. And then it circles back. So part of the challenge we've got is to rethink what we need from our staff and teams and try and connect with them on a level that makes them part of the solution, not part of the problem. So here's the fundamental challenge. If you had a demotivated workforce before COVID, chances are you're having a really bad time now. Or you've got this illusion of control, um, cognitive bias thing going where you go, it's all all right, it's all fine because it doesn't matter how bad it goes now, as soon as we get everyone back into the office, it will be okay. Yeah. The conundrum we've got now is, first of all, who's, who, who knows when we'll ever get back into the office? Second of all, why would you want to? You know, what we've started seeing looking at the generic research that's come out of working from home is that people who are generic high achievers in their own right will achieve in most environments. The people who are hurting the most are our extroverts, you know, the people who needed the social interaction. So part of what we need to do is try and teach people to understand themselves so they know what they need and why they need it. Um, so many conversations that we've had with clients have been, oh, you know, the risk of my people working from home is, you know, ranging from they don't work, you know, they just watch Netflix the whole time, to, you know, some of them are overworking. And some of them, you know, literally are working 12 hours a day because they've lost the commute, they have nowhere to go. And, you know, people, you, you know, the old story, if you want something done, you give it to a busy person, because normally they get stuff done. So the conundrum we've actually got now is not necessarily an individual one. It's around transitioning our labor force. So I'm, as, as, you, as you can probably tell, I'm all about opportunity centrism. 
and nothing negative ever happens that doesn't have a positive connotation and vice versa. This is the best time I believe Australian businesses have ever had to start changing the way our workforces operate, think and move. So as an example, for the last 30 years pre-COVID, we had 30 years of continuous economic growth. It's crazy, it's wonderful. But it means for the majority of people in the workforce, pre-COVID, they, they never knew any employment instability, financial instability, economic instability, because you know, our economy kept growing. There were always jobs. And arguably, if I didn't like this job, it's really easy to move to the next job. Yeah. Now that's all been flipped. Right. And I think the conundrum we've got moving forward is the damage we've done through the way we've managed COVID. Okay. And don't get me wrong, I think COVID has been a wicked problem. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But realistically, and I'm just talking, my, my guy in New South Wales, who's in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, um, anecdotally shared with me the other days, you know, he's heard about two suicides and three attempted suicides since the Sydney lockdown started, just in the streets around his house. We become so overwhelmed with the information around us and the negative reporting we actually stop managing the real problems and we get fixated on the narrative that was getting thrown at us from the media. So in terms of what can you know, business leaders, CEOs, executives do right now? First is understand your own limitations and stop being a, you know, uh, distracted by the hero myth. You're not perfect. You don't have to make perfect decisions, but do remember that the majority of your staff have probably been hyper-adrenalized and the media and almost every political authority around the world has consistently been bombarding us with negative messaging. You know, you will die, this will be bad, cases are bad, you know, the list just goes on. So the majority of people have actually reached uh, adrenal fatigue. And I think this is why the set of lockdowns is so hard. People just but, don't. So yeah. Gab, just go back. So just make sure I say that, sure. you know, Australia's had 30 years of stable economic growth. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, people had, had you know, not been complacent, but as a result, the, in, the inherent uh, resilience has softened because there's been no real thing to be resilient to. Now we've hit a situation where uh, the negativity and the constant bombardment by media and so on is overwhelming people because they didn't have enough resilience in their resilience tank. Is that what you mean? Excellent. Very good summary. Um, and, and this is the conundrum. Like resilience is no longer enough by itself because just hanging in there is not enough. We actually have to be changing the way we work and think to thrive. Yeah. So, but to, but to support your point, yes, 100%. And, Obviously, this is not for every demographic in the Australian population. You know, we've had people who've been hit by cyclones, bushfires, floods. You know, we've, we've got a lot of parts of the societal makeup that are pretty resilient. But for the most part, we've got a really sheltered population. And the challenge with a sheltered population is it doesn't like to be disrupted. It doesn't like to be stretched or challenged. It doesn't like to adapt. Okay, and most of that has got to do just with comfort. You know, if you think of a basic Maslow's hierarchy, we've gotten really good at the top three, you know, self-actualized states, but we have pretty much ignored the physiological or the safety risks. We've gone, that's someone else's problem. Now, 
we actually have to empower individuals to own that. So to, to close this part off, this, this is the best time I believe ever to actually teach your people the skills that will stand them in good stead moving forward. We've conventionally ignored those, and I'm going to give you an example. We lost a federal government tender a few years ago for resilience development. And the reason we were told when we lost the tender that we lost it is because we said we would simulate stress so that the people we train can use the techniques we taught them to overcome disruption. Or, And legitimately, the feedback we got was, how could you conceivably think of creating more stress for our people? And you know, we were gobsmacked at the time going, well, what do you want then? And they said, oh, no, no, we just want, you know, somebody to come in and talk about health, exercise, relationships, et cetera. So we said, okay, you want a well-being program, not a resilience program. So I, th I think this is a chance for us to reset and actually look at who's around us. What do they need personally first to be able to provide professional outcomes for us? Now, staying home and having rest doesn't seem to be the thing because everybody's been forced to do a lot of that. The challenge for extroverts is that interaction. So what we have to do is create opportunities in between lockdown cycles to connect people. And unfortunately, even though we've made epic leaps as a global population in terms of visual interaction, we are losing the, the humanistic capabilities that make us great empaths because it's hard to read. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your face at the moment and Thank goodness you're relatively expressive. <laughs> but, you know, if you look at your average Zoom meeting, there's no energy exchange, right? It's people talking at each other or listening at each other, not with each other. Just because our platforms are not built for, you know, lots of people to intersect and free flow. So I think we've got decades of work to actually try and make up for the loss of empathy, body language, understanding, and humanistic capability that we that we'll see out of the last year and a half of lockdown. But the way to start overcoming this now is starting to build individual capability, team capability, and organizational capability. This is a chance also for leaders to stop and pause and actually reflect honestly and go, if I'm still around, if my business is still going, and we've got a bit of money in the bank and, and we're okay, you've probably built a pretty strong business because yeah. this sort of disruption is epic. Yes, um, and as you've been talking, you know, I've been thinking, I mean, you're so right. And uh, uh, one of they, you know, they, they talk about an alchemist turning lead into gold. Well, in order to turn lead into gold, they need a crucible, right? They need to go through this fire of transformation or, you know, the, the sort of the opposite of the hero myth or another hero myth, the hero's journey, you know, it's through, exactly this, right. through this dark night of the soul. And yet... Uh, literally when you've got 24 hour day news cycles that are constantly uh negative uh and you know not about our leaders you know they can't put a foot right uh you know to in a microcosm a woman who's the ceo of australia post wins a big tender she rewards four of their staff by buying them a watch you know, she's condemned in parliament. She's fired from her job. Now she's a social activist against discrimination. And, uh, and it's just, uh, it, it's impossible to even perceive in our current environment that anything at a collective level will be done to do what you're talking about. Uh, 
it, you know, it needs to be organisationally led, whether that organisation is a, a business or a church or a club or, you know, whatever, because um, it's certainly not going to be led at a, uh, you know, at a governmental level. I, I agree with you. And I think this is, it's interesting. I, I presented a keynote at the uh, Global Institute of Strategic Risk Management Conference last year. And they had these super smart people you know, which was mainly mainly bad news kind of things. You know, there was one astrophysicist who came on and spoke about he does. You know, we, we shouldn't be worrying about COVID because you know right now we're up for an astro uh, solar flare that will take out our satellite <laughs> networks and you know. And then they, there were these real experts talking about you know let's talk about societal resilience. Yeah. Going oh we've got all these things so wrong you know and even the way we're building our cities you know they weren't built for the massive populations we've got and. And I just kept listening and listening and it kind of came back to what you just said, which is very wise and insightful. So if nobody's given you that compliment, well done, Richard. Thank you. But it's, we have to drive the change at our levels and we have to own it. And this is the part that uh, I would urge anyone listening to this. Try not to get fixated with freeze because it's easy to do now when we've been destabilized for so long. And look at the things you can do for your people that will make it better because we can get disproportionate return for small things now when people are feeling really battered. And I know it's tough. Like I'm sitting here looking at my business going, my pipelines in New South Wales and Victoria have gone from looking awesome to almost zero as a result of the lockdowns. And we've got to wait for the lockdowns to finish and see if what's salvageable. And, you know, I, I kind of look to your point at federal government and state government and go, oh, well, there's no help coming this time because people have gone, well, we're not in a lockdown area. I'm head office in Brisbane, too. So there's no economic support available for us, even though the lockdowns in Victoria and New South Wales are hammering us hard. My point back to that is what can you do? And, you know, there's so many examples of great uh, innovation it's not always innovation sometimes it's just refocusing and we can always do something so one of my mentors was a very interesting guy by the name of david sharp he was he passed away at 89 lecturing on a nato army base okay uh, he was originally a malay scout uh, which were the forerunners to the british sas and he was a prisoner of war in the korean war for three years and they did terrible things to this guy and he was so famous around our office for him sitting down every time somebody got hot-headed, sitting down whoever it was and going, stop wasting emotion on things you can't control. And, you know, I think this is one of those problems. We are caught in this highly emotive cycle now, which is generally negatively driven. And we've got to start looking at what are those variables we can control and how do I start to create these microcosms in my own business, in my own teams, that to some degree, counter the negativity we're being bombarded with externally. And I know that sounds esoteric, but if you can't even have a motivated team, how can you take advantage of opportunity? If I can't even have people who believe they are able to work from home and provide outputs, then I won't have anybody able to work from home because my perception will become my reality and that's what I'll find. So this is, this is the time for discipline and change in the way we, we motivate and run our people. It's not a time for risk adversity where we pull in and we go, I'm not doing anything. It's a time for balanced decision-making. And if the only single thing you could do as a leader right now was to be a figurehead and provide confidence for your people, that is something incredible. 
yeah. you know, if, if you can look at your strategies, uh, a while ago, I did a Harvard's course in disruptive innovation. It was so interesting. And, you know, the stat kept getting thrown around about how many corporate and organizational strategies are never enacted. Now, all this work goes into building this three to five year plan that just never gets applied. Where we've got a gift now of being able to look at shorter cycles without being penalized by the, by the market. We've got the opportunity to actually bring people together, albeit remotely, easier than we ever had before. And we've all got the same common ground concept to talk about, which is COVID lockdowns and being disrupted. Mm. It's uh, an interesting perspective because if, 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 you, if a business leader looks at this and goes, it's tough, I'm getting worn down, you know, decision fatigue is a reality. It's very easy to go into that negative spiral and just freeze and panic and not necessarily lead. But on the flip side, if people go, this is the chance, this is the time you need to stand up and actually go, well, I'm in a leadership position. And remember, that doesn't have to be a, a chief executive or a board member. It's anybody who somebody else looks at for guidance. This is the chance for us to bring each other up. And it's made harder by the fact that, you know, we are not getting these good news stories. And to be honest, we're, we're actually bombarded with inefficient or inaccurate reporting. So well, if, Gav, if, yeah. this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm mindful of your time. No, I think I think I think we're going to have to uh, get uh, through this next uh, six months and and reconnect. Uh, hopefully, in a post-vaccinated new COVID world, uh, in the uh, in the new year, and just see how things have have changed because. Um, the work you're doing is so interesting. And I think for uh, people who are listening, particularly CEOs and non-executive directors, uh, uh, you know, my big takeaway for this is that uh, there is, as you say, you know, there's so much opportunity here for disruption and innovation. Uh, but uh, we need to, you know, start with ourselves. You know, if I want to see change in the world, let me first you know, start with myself and uh, and then my team and then, you know, uh, growing out from there. So uh, thanks again, Gav. Fascinating conversation. Look forward to reconnecting. And uh, if anybody is interested in touching base with Gav, we'll have all of his links in the show notes and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.